So for example, people from Germany would come to the US and think, well, Amer Americans are very, you know, have no sense of time and everything's sort of loosey-goosey. Whereas other people from, you know, maybe other countries where time is more fluid, whether it's from Latin America or from maybe Italy, you know, would think, well, oh, those Americans, you know, they're, they're so structured and so everything has to be on time. So it's all relative. See, it's really hard to say, well, one or the other. And I just found that whole area really fascinating. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. After last week's episode, where we discussed the making of Susan Cattaneo's album All Is Quiet, today we return to a regular format. Our guest is my former colleague Matthew Sawyer, who, after a long and successful career in marketing, has spent the past few years teaching at NYU and Columbia. Matt has also finished writing the book Make It in America, which will be out in a few months. The book is aimed at international companies that want to launch a business in the US. It was great catching up with him. We talked about bringing transformation to companies, bridging silos, and how he formed his leadership style. We talked about what led him to leave corporate America to start teaching, and the parallels between teaching a class of 20 students from all over the world and leading a corporate team. Of course, we also talked about some of the issues that international companies who want to grow their U.S. presence need to think about. And we also talked about how some of those lessons also apply to American companies. One final thing, remember, I am giving a free copy of Bill Principale's book, Improvisational Leadership, to my favorite review for the show written before the end of July. And I am giving away a free copy of Susan's CD, All Is Quiet, to my favorite review written before the end of August. So run over to Apple Podcasts and leave your review and a glowing rating of the show. And now enjoy the episode. I'm very excited to have as my guest today, one of the people who have been really meaningful influences to me in my career. I have Matt Sawyer, who was my direct manager when I started working at Digit as a Matt. We've talked a little bit about this right before the recording, but I learned a lot from you and in a lot of ways because you have a very different style of managing and on thinking than I had at the time. When we started working together, I was fresh out of two years of investment banking, business school consulting, very young, very arrogant, and had sort of a thought of only, you know, one way of managing kind of like the hardcore, all numbers, all data. And in the beginning, your style, which is much broader, I don't think I had the right level of respect. We were working on an investment banking client, actually, and we were at the agency. But the moment that I opened myself up to the idea that maybe there wasn't only my way to run and manage things and actually realize that if I took what were my strengths and use them to support your strengths, we would make a great team. That was an incredible moment of growth for me. And I think the fact that 22 years later now, I still consider you one of my most formative mentors and now a really close friend is a testament. So that's my introduction to Matt Sawyer, our guest today. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I've been looking forward to speaking here and really enjoy our friendship. And yeah, so 
Look, let's talk about authenticity. Let's start quick introduction to you know our listeners. As I said, I met you 20 years ago, but you already had a pretty significant career up to that point and then afterwards as a marketing leader. So if you want to share your story a little bit, how you got there, and then we can go from there. Well, I started off in advertising, which was really, and that's maybe why, you know, as you talked about in terms of my management style, because it was very, very much managing from the middle. I was working at a an advertising agency, which was headed by some of the greats, uh, Bill Backer, who had written, I'd love to teach the world to sing, welcome to Miller time, and just a lot of fantastic people and going in there and being the the account person leading I was very much in terms of trying to get people's attention and getting them enthusiastic and involved. So it was less in terms of me telling people what to do, but more getting them excited about the business and what we could do and working together. And it was really about teams. And that was a really formative for me in terms of looking at things. And it doesn't work in every situation. I was working previously before getting to Digitas. I was at Snapple Beverages. And uh, at Snapple, one of the senior people wanted me to, when I walked into a room, wanted everyone to be like, stop what they were doing and being like, fearful, here comes the boss. And that just wasn't me. And so I didn't feel comfortable and then also moved into Digitas because at the time they were doing some really exciting things. And I very much wanted to get involved in digital economy and what was going on at the time. After that, I ended up going back into the business world where I was running a Fortune 500 company. I was running the corporate marketing and websites, and I did that for about five or six years. And then for the past eight years, I got out of the corporate world and I went into teaching. And I've been teaching at Columbia University and NYU and also doing some consulting on the side. So, my career has, it's almost like I've been my fourth or fifth different careers, but it's all, one is additive on the other, and I, I just love what I'm doing now. What's really interesting is that you have been coming from a very traditional world, then walked into the more digital world of Digitus, and then, if I remember correctly, in your role as VP of Marketing, as you mentioned, you were starting to build digital capabilities, and these are like the early to mid-2000s, in a company that by its nature and its culture probably was very analog. So what were some of the, you know, the ways that, because I think transformation, even though the what you're transforming may change, I think how you transform and how you drive transformation through an organization has some principles that matter no matter what you're doing. So what are some of the ways that you drove transformation through this organization? And what can we learn from that? In terms of what the situation or the task was to set the context. So the company at the time had been each one of the little divisions had their own websites. And they were over in the company, there were over 80 different websites that were set up. The R&D department had one, The each one of the business units had one. And so as the head of a corporate, I was needed to take those 80 websites and then merge them into one. So we had two, we had an internal facing one and an external one. 
And so it was really challenging because people didn't want to give up control. They didn't want to. So what it, what we needed to do is, is we needed to present to them the bigger picture of why it was important for the consumer, for the people who were coming to us, and then giving them an opportunity to then argue for and participate in the decisions about what to then present to the customer. And it wasn't perfect. We had one group which had a million small business customers, and they just wanted it to be really transactional. And then we had another division of the company that were selling these million-dollar computerized advanced systems, and they wanted to be much more of a consultative. So there definitely was friction. But it was a way of needing to bring people together. And it's, you know, I think that this idea about what leadership is to me, and this was told to me by Ray Day, who was the chief communications officer at IBM, and he had been the chief communications officer at Ford during the whole Ford transition and nearly going bankrupt, is a leader is someone who paints a picture of reality and then shows them a path to moving forward in a positive direction. And I thought that that was a great way of explaining, you know, what what leadership is about. Yeah, I think it's the basically finding the balance between aspiration and and what one can actually put into practice. So since you mentioned an example of, of a leader that taught you something, as you think about your style as a leader and sort of what you admire and respect in leaders, what were some of the key moments in your career? And then what are some of the key traits that you see as fundamental and, you know, when you're your best self as a leader? I was really fortunate in that at the company was Pitney Bowes. We had hired and worked with Clay Christensen, who was the Harvard Business School professor and really one of the most noted business thinkers about disruptive innovation. And we had hired him both to be a consultant, and then I was running conferences and had him as a speaker. And I got a chance to talk with him several times. And he was really influential to me because he was you know, very much in terms of talking about, well, how do you measure success? And I think he had written a book about it. Was it do you measure success in terms of the amount of money that you have earned, you know, the rise in the organization? You know, is it family? You know, what is it that you determine in terms of your level of, of measuring of success? And he talked about how his level of success or how me, he measured success is how many people that he's made a positive impact on and how has he moved and it was less about himself and how he gave to other people. He was also a very religious person as well. And that was very much in terms of as I made the decision to leave the corporate world and to move more in terms of teaching and consulting. And that was a really big influence on me. For me, when, you know, I remember when you mentioned that you were teaching and teaching more and more in a lot of ways, your ability to communicate and your ability to teach was something that was true also in the corporate world. But what made you decide to just fully dedicate yourself to that? I don't know. I gave it a try. I thought someone said that I would be good at it. <laughs> so I gave it a try and I was pretty good at it. And then the people at Columbia had heard about it and they asked me to go teach up there. And then I moved over to NYU. So 
I don't know. So it was, you know, I, I think one of the things that that in my career is, is that I've tried things and, you know, some things have worked out well. Some at one point I tried to work, I tried to go into sales. And so I worked at a, a tech startup and I was uh, doing sales, which, and I was terrible. You know, I was just, I didn't, you know, the product wasn't great, but, and I have nothing against salespeople because I think that salespeople, you know, it's, you know, the amount of creativity and intelligence that's required to be good at sales, but I just wasn't good at it. So I've tried things and, you know, I think one of the things about, you know, maybe not being afraid of failure has something that uh, maybe I just, as Abraham Lincoln said, I'm stumbling forward. And I kind of stumbled into teaching and really enjoying it. And there's a lot in terms of, you know, authenticity in terms of being a teacher, because you're out there and you're very vulnerable. You're giving of yourself, you're sharing your knowledge, your information, your insights. And the students know, the students know if you're faking it, if you don't know what you're talking about, or you're not interested in the subject. And particularly at, you know, I'm very fortunate to be teaching at two great schools where you have, you know, really bright students from all over the world and they can see right through. So this idea about, you know, being yourself and doing it out in the open, being vulnerable, it's very much in terms of, you know, as I look at being your authentic self is, you know, that's what makes a good teacher. And, and especially I think students, bright students at that age, not only they can see it through, but they're also, I, I think there's an amount of viciousness towards, you know, when you're, when you're teaching students at that level, if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to find out very quickly. Yeah. And, and you're not going to please everyone. You know, this is funny. Last semester, I, w- I had, I taught two courses and I had 40 students. And then at the end of the semester, they, you know, asked them to do course evaluations. And so out of the 40 students, 24 students responded. Uh, 23 said that I was an excellent teacher. And one person said, oh, he's adequate. (laughs) And of course, I fixate on the one person who said I'm just adequate. But but that's another story. Yeah, that's like, you know, that's also another part of being able to work the idea that you're not going to please everybody and being able to move along. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, I would say that's part of the consensus building process. Yeah. I, well, I think consensus, at least in the in the teaching world, it's consensus around really wanting to understand the subject, really wanting to learn, really wanting to. And it's less about, you know, consensus of this is the way it is. And it's more around consensus that this is really interesting and I want to learn more. And that's where I think the consensus in the, in the classroom is. It's about the subject. Yeah. So I think you're in a, you know, sort of unique position in that you are teaching at a very high level institution, but, you know, you had a lot of experience in the corporate world before. So what, if you're thinking about a leader in a corporate world, like what are some of the lessons that they could take from how you manage successfully a classroom? You know, this idea about, you know, you have to giving it at your all in terms of, you know, putting yourself out and really the students really know that you've done your homework, you've done, you've put in, 
you've gotten great guest speakers, you've really crafted a great lesson, you've put together great exercises, um, and they, they recognize that and they appreciate it. So I think it's, you know, seeing the hard work and then, you know, bring a level of enthusiasm to the, to the subject. And then the, I guess the other part too is, is that I try to, and I'm fortunate that usually there's only a class of maybe maximum of 20 students, you know, trying to individualize each one of the, because people are coming from different places. And so I have a lot of students where English is a second language. So for them, you know, it's some things like presentations and whatever might be a little bit harder, but I try to recognize and try to bring them up. And I generally reward more effort and improvement than I do, you know, the level of, of expertise that they come in at. If you think about translating those in a corporate setting, knowing what you're doing, yeah, the expertise in preparing the lesson and showing people that you actually have the expertise, taking ownership for bringing the enthusiasm and the energy to the team. And then I think if you put it in the corporate leadership, in the corporate environment, the idea that it's your responsibility as a leader to maximize to the style of each individual team member that you have and optimize their ability rather than trying to get to force feed everybody in a single cookie cutter. And so an example that I think back of it is, is so when I was at Pitney Bowes, I had about 20 people who were on the team and some people were at different levels. Some people had more experience and some people were, were just coming in new. And so people who had more experience, I tend to let them go off and, you know, just be there for if they needed advice, if they needed some help or overcoming obstacles or talking through a, an issue or problem, where other people who are new, it was much more hands-on and more um, overseeing what they were doing on a closer basis because they needed it. So it was treating people differently, um, but then also asking them and finding out, you know, is this working for you? Do you like this level of oversight or do you want more daily involvement? You know, and so sort of that communication about how do you like to be managed is, you know, a good thing to find out. In some ways, it's almost like a way to, to allow your, your team members to take some responsibility and, you know, agency over creating their own success in, in partnership with you. Right. We talked a little earlier about the, the idea of uh, Clay Christensen and, you know, thinking about how you measure success. How has your own definition of success changed over the years? Well, I think that now I have less demands on me. And so, you know, certainly when I had two children that I had to put through college, you know, the things that were much higher degree in terms of getting bonuses, moving up in the organization. So those things were more necessary and more important. And now I have the luxury of not being as concerned about that. So that's, I think that's more of a stage of life. I also want to talk about something that we didn't mention earlier, but you not only are teaching, but you've also just finished writing a book, which is coming out, I believe, in December, is that correct? 
Yeah, so it's um, actually available right now up on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and for international folks, uh, book depository. And the book is called uh, "Make It in America: How International Companies and Entrepreneurs Can Successfully Enter and Scale in U.S. Markets." And it came from I had been doing some uh, consulting work with several international firms coming to the United States, and I saw how they were struggling. And I also did some work with some of the European American Chambers of Commerce. And there was a real need, there was a gap of knowing, you know, just how the system works, you know, how the legal system works, how the finance system works, you know, how the visa system works, the things that it's almost like entering the country with eyes wide open. And so there's less in terms of, although there is a checklist for things that you need to look through, but it's more of the reasons why. The reasons why our country is so different in different parts of the country. The reasons why our legal system is the way it is. And so once you understand that, then you'd be better able to then enter and grow, which I think is, number one, very much of a needed thing by companies and entrepreneurs that wanted to come here, um, as well as it's really important for our country because we really need that talent. We need the the growth. We need the the best of the world to want to come here and to grow. So what's interesting to me as you're talking about this is the idea that Yes, there's a checklist about how things are different, but there's a lot about the why certain things are different. And I would be willing to bet that understanding the why, while it definitely would help a foreign company coming into the U.S., but there's certain places where understanding the why could actually help also a lot of American entrepreneurs. So what are a couple of like interesting, you know, areas where like, oh, this is this is like a unique thing of the American system that people need to be aware of. And that's the root of it. Well, one of the things was around our legal system. And so the the US legal system is number one, it's a it's a case law. So it's based off of judicial judgment as opposed to in other countries. In Italy, for example, it's much more of a civil where it's much more based on the actual legal code. In the U.S., it's more of an interpretation. And so you have the two sides, the lawyers for two or more parties that come together that argue their cases. And so that's very different. The other thing that's so different in the U.S. than it is in other countries is is that in other countries, if you were to sue someone and you were to lose, well, you have to pay the other person's legal fees. Where here in the U.S., you don't have to do that. So you can have all of these frivolous cases that go on. Um, In some cases, you can hire a lawyer that works on contingency. So the U.S. is much more of a the level of legal, and it's much more litigious than any other country in the world. And just knowing that is, is that you know that you have to have good legal advisors and working with it. And in the book, I lay that out, but <laughs> the first paragraph of that chapter says, I'm not a lawyer and you definitely have to, you know, seek good legal advice. But here are some of the reasons why. And this is as you're going in to talk to 
companies and situations, you need to or speak to lawyers, you need to know what questions to ask. One of the other things about the book is, is that it has uh, each chapter, there's a case study that's in there that demonstrates a, a, an example of a company or an entrepreneur that tried to come to the U.S. and some of the things that they encountered. So in the chapter about law and legal issues, there is a case study of a Scottish company that came to the U.S. and they had a uh, trademark. Uh, the name of the company was called Pillow Partners, and they had trademarked that name in the U.K., but they thought that the trademark would work here in the U.S. And they quickly found out that they couldn't use the name Pillow, and they had to change that in terms of, um, but it was things that, you know, just understanding and knowing what to look out for was something that, you know, just a basic knowledge and information that I think will be helpful for people trying to come to the U.S. Yeah. And is there another example in case study that you can share? I don't want to do too many because I want people to actually get the book. But <laughs> well, the one that I'm I'm really because I'm for me marketing and is really you know my, what I get most excited about and and as sort of a marketer at heart, I give the case study of a German window company that came to the U.S. and had been a 120 year old company, very fine manufacturer um, in Europe. And they had been selling some to the U.S. And they decided that in 2014, they decided to try to come into the U.S. in a big way. And they did a joint venture with another German company and built a, a $10 million factory. And then within two years, they were out of business. And they went back to, to Germany and closed up the factory. I go through sort of the reasons why. And a lot of it is in terms of they just didn't understand the market. There was the product market fit. They just didn't understand. For example, in Europe, people have a turn and twist windows where you bring the window into the room. Or in the U.S., we like windows that are either double hung or casement windows that go out. Um, also, at the time, uh, energy prices were a lot lower in the U.S. than they are in Europe. And their windows were highly energy efficient, uh, but they also cost twice as much. And Americans weren't going to pay twice as much for a window because the payback on the cost of energy efficiency was just going to be too long. And then the other thing that the company didn't realize was that the level of skill that was needed in terms of manufacturing these highly precise wooden windows, they had to spend a lot of time training um, their employees. And so it took them twice as long to get their factory up and running. And the bank just said to them, you know, you're, it's taken you too long to get up and running. The sales aren't coming in as, as we expected. We're not going to give you any more money. <laughs> and then hence the, uh, they ended up closing the factory. Product market fit, I think, is something that it's been the death of many even local companies, right? Because as as an inventor, like you you fall in love with your product and your product may be spectacular, but then, you know, you can't figure out whether the product can be sold for what you need in order for you to produce it. <laughs> you need good intelligence. You need to understand the market. You know, as you know, as a marketer, 
you know, is really understanding and getting to to really get a sense of what the market is really like and being honest and being open. I'm curious, is there any case of something you see as like your great best practices from company that is coming to the US or is or is the book really focusing on by topic explaining like what can go wrong? There's only a couple of companies that weren't successful that I highlight. There's a lot more companies that were successful. One company, for example, was it's a uh, Australian company called Rockt, R-O-K-T, that's in the e-commerce uh, software business. And so they've developed software which optimizes the transaction in e-commerce. And they developed the the software, the founder had been at an Asian Jetstar, which was an Asian airlines, which was a direct consumer airlines. And through that, recognized that the software that was available was not very good. And so he sensed that problem. He knew there was a problem and then developed software that they tested in Australia and New Zealand and then came to the U.S., built up uh, hiring a lot of local U.S. talent and built it up and it just was uh, valued. It's going to probably be going to go IPO next year, but it was just valued at $1.8 billion. And that's a case where he really understood the two things there is, is that he really understood the problem and he came out with a solution that was solving a really important problem. And then the second thing, it's a huge market. As you know, the e-commerce market is like you know five or seven trillion dollars, and the software that then supplies that and then is the engine behind it is a multi-billion-dollar category too. So going after a really large market is also an important lesson from that case, right? Because of course, the U- if you crack the U.S. market, it's such a large market that if you're doing it in a very large category. You, you don't need to capture a very large share to have profit and growth. Yeah. See, the, the lessons are coming from an international standpoint, but let's think about there's the universal lessons that apply no matter where you're starting from and no matter you know which market you're trying to enter. What are the three or four key things for somebody who's starting a business to think about as they, you know, based on like all your learnings from the book? Well, I think that, you know, there are certain areas, one in terms of setting up the company right. And so there's a whole section around structuring business and whether to incorporate, where to incorporate, the capital structure that's put together in order to get investment. So that's really important, sort of the, the fundamentals. Another important is, is around this idea about solving important problems and really understanding the customer and developing the product for them. To me, those are sort of two of the key lessons. One more thing that I think it's fascinating, there's there's an additional layer, which is when you're going into a country from a country, there are some cultural, just regular cultural gaps that exist, right? And I am assuming that companies that are successful find the right blend between maintaining their own culture, but also embracing the the local culture. What are some of the best practices in that area? 
Well, it, it's interesting about because there's a whole section on culture. And so I didn't feel like being an American and seeing my view as being very narrow in a way. So I did a lo lot of work with a book with um, a group out of uh, the Hofstede Institute, which is uh, Hofstede Insights, which is out of Finland. And they also have branches all over the world, but it's based on some of the foundational work by Goethe Hofstede, which was looking at the different cultural components. And he has a framework for looking at the differences between cultures of different countries. And so I use that as the basis or the model to then make up insights for how people from other countries can come to the U.S. And it's somewhat relational. So, for example, people from Germany would come to the U.S. and think, well, Amer Americans are very, you know, have no sense of time and everything's sort of loosey-goosey, whereas other people from, you know, maybe other countries where time is more fluid, whether it's from Latin America or from maybe Italy, <laughs> you know, would think, well, oh, those Americans, you know, they're, they're so structured and so everything has to be on time. So it's all relative. See, it's really hard to say, well, one or the other. And I just found that whole area really fascinating. And so understanding the culture of Americans coming in was also really important in terms of how do you then work with, with people, with you manage people. So that's a whole area. I think you're absolutely right that understanding culture and then, of course, you know, trying to bring that culture to an organization or if you're setting up, what are the aspects of your culture that you want to bring in? You know, that's also a fascinating area. Are there some best practices, processes that, you know, you've seen in some of your case studies? I think it's, you know, more in just in terms of really getting in and really understanding. So really understanding, and then, of course, in terms of testing, observing what's happening, refining, until it's almost like testing your way in. Um, so I think that that's really important. And then the other aspect in terms of coming to the U.S. is finding a beachhead or finding a small market where then you can come and test the water, see what works, and then grow and move from there. You know, that certainly is important. Oh, that isn't always the case. One thing that early in my career, I worked at an agency and we helped Hyundai come into the U.S. And Hyundai, you know, because of the scale and the size, you know, the entire U.S. was the market that they needed to then enter. So they didn't have that luxury. Are there lessons that can apply the other way? So for American companies that want to go abroad? Um, it certainly, you know, would be, it wasn't really where I focused because I really focused in trying to help people understand the U.S. But I think some of those same principles in terms of really understanding the market that you're going into, you know, what are the consumer needs? What are they looking for? What are the situations in terms of whether it's the political, the legal, you know, that same kind of understanding the landscape and understanding the people, those core approaches, skills, strategy, as you know, from a, as being, you know, coming from the consulting and, and marketing world, you know, those are just basic 
necessities of what you have to do in order to expand into a new market. All right. So and this is a good point to stop our more professional part of the conversation. <laughs> so is there an interest outside of your professional interest or a hobby or a passion that you have? And how has that helped you in your professional world? Well, it's actually a funny instance that I grew up and working in a kitchen and working in restaurants. And so um, I love to cook. And so that's something that I don't know if it's a necessity, but what I love about cooking is, is that you can experiment, you can try things, and then you can get instant response in terms of what you're <laughs> what you've created was worth the effort. So that's something that uh, I guess it's more of a, a hobby and and a love. And it's funny is that my wife is a terrific baker. And so, but her approach is much more, and she's creative, but it's much more in terms of you have to be much more precise in baking, where cooking, you can just, you know, throw in handfuls of things. And I don't think anything, any dish that I've ever made is exactly the same twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> My favorite question of the podcast is every era has some jargon, business expressions that after a while, become hollow or even annoying. What is the expression that drives you crazy? What the one that that's really I've been hearing a lot um, lately is this, this idea of the new normal. And so for me, it's like, well, what is normal? You know, nothing is ever normal. And even before, you know, we're in a constant change and situations are changed and nothing is. And maybe it's just this idea of, you know, maybe this hyper, you know, event, the COVID event that just put a microscope on things that had to change, but everything is constantly changing. So I don't know, this new normal just, you know, that one really uh, bothers me. All right. Final question. Food for the body or food for the soul? You can pick either a recipe, a dish, a drink, or if you want to go more to the soul, a book, a movie, a piece of music, a play, a piece of art, something that inspires you. I'm just reading a book now. It's actually another NYU teacher by uh, Dr. Christian Bush called The Serendipity Mindset. And looking at the fact, well, serendipity is sort of this unexpected good luck that happens, you know, with unplanned moments. And he set out in terms of this idea that, you know, if you go in and being open to that luck happens to people, you can create your own luck. And that increasing the, the number of meaningful accidents, being open and being able to connect the dots so I'm reading that book now, and that's that's kind of inspiring me right now. That's great. Well, Matt, as usual, it's great to talk to you. First of all, thank you very much for everything you've meant personally in my career. And thank you for being here. My pleasure. And I look forward to uh, continuing our many discussions. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Everything helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. 
And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews, please leave a rating or a review. And remember, the best review left before the end of July will receive a copy of Bill Principale's book, Improvisational Leadership. And the best review left before the end of August will get a free copy of Susan Catano's album, All Is Quiet. And stay tuned through the credits because at the end, as usual, I will play a song by Susan Catano. You can pre-order Matt's book, Make It in America, on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And you can find more about the book at Matt's site, MatthewLeeSawyer.com, spelled M-A-T-T-H-E-W-L-E-E-S-A-W-Y-E-R.com. You can find me online at AL4EP.com with the number four. And you can email me at Dino at AL4EP.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at AL4EDP with a D. And you can find the show on Facebook at Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Willems on bass. And now I'm going to play you a song by Susan's duo, Honest Mechanic, which, since we're talking about international companies, is appropriately titled Translate. Enjoy! So far from the start Did we stare too much at the stars? Oh, did we do too much? Oh, did we not do enough? Always second-guessing along the way Sure, we'd like to join you, but stay Talk to when you've gone. Oh.